I think in in <clears throat> ways having kids softens the blow a little bit emotionally because hmm. I have these two beautiful reflections of the love that I shared with this man. And in other ways, it makes it a lot harder. Mm-hmm. You know, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of his death, which is November 1st. And I've got a kid that's home today from school because he needed a mental health day. Mm. And the other one is, you know, he has his moments where he doesn't like to talk about his feelings. Sure. And he just ends up exploding instead. And that stresses everybody out. Yeah. Um, but... I'd say there there are good things and and difficult things. Mm-hmm. They're not really bad things. They're just difficult. Hello and welcome to episode seven of Connecting ALS. I'm your host Mike Stevenson from the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter of the ALS Association. In November, we are celebrating National Family Caregivers Month, which means recognizing all the incredible individuals who commit to caring for a loved one. That is the theme for really the entire month, and we've got some compelling caregiving content to share with you throughout, including a couple bonus segments I'll mention a bit later on. But first on the docket is a conversation I had with two very kind and thoughtful people in Danielle Carr and Sean Olson, both of whom have considerable experience as family caregivers. They also happen to be close friends, and it was interesting to hear them share some of the lessons they've learned over the years. In the second segment, we took advantage of the expertise that exists within our own team here at the ALS Association in an interview with Care Services Coordinator Jennifer Myrie. Jennifer has been assisting caregivers in our region for many years and helped paint a clearer picture of both the challenges they face and the resources that are available to help. To wrap today's show, we'll be introducing a new segment meant to provide a glimpse into the lives of individuals and families living with ALS. We're calling it A Moment With, and this month our producer Garrett spent some time with the Seidel family from the Twin Cities of Minnesota. All right, since we've got a jam-packed episode, let's get right into the conversation with Danielle and Sean. We are fortunate uh, this morning to be joined by Danielle Carr and Sean Olson, both of whom reside in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Good morning, Danielle and Sean. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Good morning. Our pleasure. The reason we wanted to speak to the two of you today relates to November being National Family Caregiver Month. And both of you were ALS caregivers for a number of years. And I use the past tense because, unfortunately, both of your husbands lost their lives to this disease. Uh, Danielle, your husband Jason passed away last fall, and Sean, uh, your husband Scott, in 2017. We really appreciate you being willing to share your thoughts on the podcast. But first, let me just ask, uh, how are each of you doing? I I think for the most part, we're... I'm doing fine. And I say we're because I'm speaking for my children too. Mm -hmm. It's been a period of adjustment. And the only way to just put it out there is just say things are different. Sure. You know, we're still going on with what we would have done otherwise. But maybe we're doing it in a way that's a little more meaningful and we take more stock in what we're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. How about you, Sean? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, There are moments, of course, always that you have that ugly head rear itself up and Mm -hmm. you have a good cry. But it's, um, I think overall I'm doing fairly well. What do you think? You you see me quite often. (laughs) Yeah, I I think you're doing really well. I think you are too. I think part of that too is that, you know, both of us were really fortunate to have really strong love. Mm. Amazing men. Mm-hmm. Amazing men, mm-hmm. definitely. And yeah. I think that that's part of what keeps me strong and getting through this. Yeah, well, agree. and a positive outcome of uh, these uh, tragic circumstances was the friendship that the two families forged. <laughs> From day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I imagine that clearly you still lean on one another for support. Oh, yes. Very regularly. <laughs> that's definitely. Good. That's we've, good. We've formed a lifelong friendship. Yes. Oh, that's that's awesome to hear. Mm-hmm. We talk about building a compound with five mm-hmm. homes around it and a pool in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> to retire into. Uh-huh. Okay, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. That'd work. 
So uh, we're going to get into all things caregiving uh, in this segment. And while National Family Caregiver Month recognizes caregivers from really all walks of life, there are some unique elements to caring for a loved one that's living with ALS. Can the two of you talk about that a little bit, about what makes it different uh, when you're caring for a loved one with ALS? Do you want to start? Go ahead. Um, I'll say when you're given a diagnosis of ALS, Mm -hmm. there isn't really any hope. You're given a death sentence. And I mean, I'm I'm being blunt about it Mm -hmm. because there's no other way to to take it in. And you're in so much shock and overwhelmed by the information that's out there. Right. But where do you start? Hmm. And who's going to understand this? Because it's not the most common thing. Mm -hmm. So... You know, there, there there are a lot of different factors that go into how you approach that. Mm. Well, and the, the disability that comes along with it. I know there are other diseases that have uh, disabilities going on, but you're looking at somebody that's deteriorating physically right in front of your eyes, sometimes in a very short period of time. Mm. And the ability to adapt to it quickly... I mean, I remember just trying to stay one step ahead. I would notice the deterioration before he would ever mention it Mm -hmm. to me. And so I'd be like, all right, we have to think about this now. Mm -hmm. We have to adapt to this new normal for however long it'll last. Right. Right. I I suppose that's a big part of it, trying to anticipate as it's a disease of loss and and each kind of day is Mm -hmm. a little bit harder than the one before. You have to think about what are we going to need next and how is that going to change things for our dynamic going forward? There's no real roadmap. I mean, and you don't want to plan ahead too much about things that could happen Mm -hmm. because everybody's so different that has ALS. Right. You know, and some people just have one type of it, whether it's limb onset or bulbar onset, mm-hmm. you know, and then others get both. Yeah. Well, and then there's the dementia that some get too. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true Fortunately, as well. we did not experience that no. part of it. Mm. So many people are thrust into this role as a caregiver without time to prepare or plan. And you mentioned the ALS diagnosis being one that there's really no way to prepare for and feeling so overwhelmed by really that process and the amount of information being thrown at you so Mm -hmm. quickly. Early on, what kind of support did you depend on to kind of get you through those initial stages of, of adjusting to that role? Well, I think for me, I I wanted to surround myself with people that knew what it was mm. and kind of knew how to approach it. And I was lucky enough that two weeks after Jason's diagnosis, I was able to go to the support group meeting. Mm. And that's where I met Sean and Scott. Mm-hmm. And well, so Jason met the two of them. And... I don't think I was able to articulate anything between the tears Mm -hmm. that were coming out of me, Um, but everybody got it. And even the woman who was sitting next to me that couldn't speak, Mm -hmm. she had her pad and she wrote to me. And I just felt like, oh boy, this is what we have to look forward to. And it scared me. Mm -hmm. And I knew ALS was scary, but I didn't know what it was. Right. And with Jason, you know, on his diagnosis day, it was clear you, he was a carpenter and it was like, you can't be on ladders. Mm -hmm. You can't be Mm -hmm. on top of a roof Mm -hmm. because his was limb onset. So all of a sudden we're facing one income. Right. And all kinds of things are just like going on in our heads. Like we live in a three level farmhouse. Mm what's going to happen, how quickly is it going to happen, yeah. and there's just not no telling. All that immediately mm-hmm. goes through your mind. Mm-hmm. I went through a different avenue than Danielle. Mm-hmm. I was surprised when they had said at that support meeting that he had just been diagnosed two weeks before. Mm-hmm. Scott and I were nowhere near ready. Mm. Um, I went into a denial of sense where all I wanted to do was take care of him, make sure he was okay. Yep. He was fine. Yep. He had some balance problems, but he was okay. He mm-hmm. wasn't going to go anywhere at any time soon. Mm-hmm. We lived in a three-floor 
row house. We had to move and it was just ripping that bandaid off. Why are we moving? Well, because the stairs. We want yep. flat level. Yep. And so it took us a long time. I think I didn't go to support group for the first year. Uh, Scott went six months after I did. Mm -hmm. And when I went, I brought a good friend of mine. So I wasn't there alone yep. for the first three times, I think I mm -hmm. did that. But it was different road for me than Danielle. Danielle, I think, was a little stronger in the beginning than I was. Well, and as you both said, it's it's different for everyone on both sides, both for the person living with ALS and for their caregiver and for their family. Everyone has to process differently and has to come to those kind of realizations in their own way. And it takes time, varying amounts of time. Danielle, you mentioned Jason stopping working and, and thinking about living off of one income. And that's a common theme for a lot of families. And as the disease progresses and your loved one needs an increasing level of care and attention, oftentimes that decision about whether you can continue to work yourself or if you need to assume more of a full-time caregiving role, that comes into play. At what point did each of you kind of reach that point where you thought about, what am I going to do here? And I imagine it's something that you discussed with your husbands pretty regularly. Yeah, I think, you know, right away, I, I started to overthink things a little bit mm. and try to plan things out. We applied for SSDI, mm -hmm. which there's a six-month waiting period. Yeah. And for us, even though he had this terminal diagnosis that, you know, you get this diagnosis, that's it. I mean, you need to start saying your goodbyes and start planning for, like, how you're going to transition to that goodbye. Mm. But a mortgage company is not going to wait Right. Well, you're waiting for that other piece of your income that you're missing out on. Mm -hmm. And it really puts a burden on families. And fortunately for my husband and I, we had parents that could support us mm. and help cushion that blow in the beginning. Yeah. And then you're talking about another side of it where as you're going through the process and kind of balancing all the expenses of everything that's coming in and mm -hmm. navigating what a caddy waiver is and all of this other stuff that's available. Yeah. But you have to put time into it. Mm -hmm. And if you're already limited on time because you're caregiving, yeah. that's a really overwhelming and complicated process. Mm -hmm. And then trying to figure out how you're going to be able to leave your career and one that I had invested in and yeah. and really felt good about where I was, mm -hmm. that was difficult. Of course. It was very difficult. And I had an amazing employer that did so much for my family when they found out about the diagnosis. Mm. And they were so flexible with me and letting me work from home, which worked in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I could hear if he fell, mm. which was not a good thing, especially if I was on a conference call, but yeah, you know, scary. I could, I could put him on mute. And it finally got to a point where his symptoms had become significant enough that I knew, mm. I knew I wouldn't be able to work anymore. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, all of our family members were on board with my being the caregiver for him. Yeah. But that comes at a price too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What a difficult decision to make. Sean, how about you? Scott was a VP of finance, so we didn't ever really have to worry. He was very smart in organizing his money. He had gotten, and I don't know what pulled him to make this decision. He was lucky, but he had gotten long-term disability insurance. Mm. So when he left work after his diagnosis, after not paying for his 401k anymore, and he had prepaid the taxes on the insurance. Oh, wow. He was basically bringing home the same amount of money mm. on disability as he would have been if he had been working. Mm. So we, we didn't really have the financial struggle that a lot of yeah, people have. Yeah, many families have, yeah. We had the emotional struggle of me feeling like if I left work, I would be unemployed because mm. as a gay couple, we didn't get the benefit of SSDI and until it was legal to marry. Mm -hmm. And by that point, I had already left work and right. I was not wow. 
gaining anything out of it or was unable to mm -hmm. claim it at that point. Mm -hmm. My my employer, my boss, was very, very flexible. I worked for probably a year after his diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And one week he had fallen a few times and I would have to leave and go pick him up. And that was the week that I decided I have to be done. Yeah. I can't I can't keep running back and forth. Right. And I went in on a Wednesday and said, I have to be done. And my boss was like, what day? And I said, Friday. And he's like, okay. Mm. So it was good. They were good to me. Well, and it's, it's one thing to think about the logistical elements of it all and how are we going to make this work financially and time-wise and how's it all going to play out on that front. But then just the emotional stress that comes with it. Like you said, if you are going to stay at work and you're worrying or if you're on a conference call and you are at home, you're still wondering and it's, you have that kind of push and pull of the emotions and that stress on top of just dealing with being a caregiver. That really adds up pretty quickly. It does. When you're Even when you have somebody come into the house mm -hmm. to help you, and to give you a break yeah. with the respite care program that we utilized, mm -hmm. you're never really gone. Mm -hmm. And I think you can attest it too when Jason wanted to go into the hospice to give you a few days of reprieve. You're never really gone. Mm -hmm. You're constantly, I would leave and in my constant mind yeah. would be going, what is happening? Is he okay? Is he, you know. I bet. It, you're never really gone. I bet. Oh, yeah. I mean. I, I can remember after Jason passed away, I was so used to being within 10 minutes of wherever he was. Mm. And I had some severe anxiety about crossing the river from Minneapolis oh, to St. Paul. Because yeah. I felt like I was going to be too far away from him. Mm. And even though he wasn't there, you yeah. know, I, we had these residual effects mm -hmm. from... Yeah, your, your, your habits don't change right, right away. I remember... Every time I would leave the house, I'd be gone for maybe a half hour, and I'd be like, I got to get home. I got to get home. Mm. And he'd been gone. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. And I was like, I got to get home. And I would be like, why? Why do I need to get home? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and there's there's some research out there, too, that talks a little bit about PTSD and caregiving mm. and how they believe about 65% of people are, that have gone through the caregiving process yeah. have PTSD. I believe that. And it does change you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. quite a bit. And oh, yeah. I already had a pretty dark sense of humor, but to get through it, it became even more dark, and that's part of our oh, connection. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> the two of you well, have learned think, to laugh. I know that. I think that that carried us through the disease was our ability and our spouse's abilities mm -hmm. to laugh in the face of mm -hmm. what we were going oh, yeah. through. Uh -huh. I mean, uh -huh. they the first thing we were told when he was diagnosed is attitude is everything. Attitude is going to keep you alive longer. Uh -huh. The positive is what will do it. And after the initial shock, I mean, Scott and I, and I believe you and Jason too, would always laugh. We never, uh -huh. I don't remember, I, we'd disagree, but we'd never argue. Uh -huh. And when he got sick, that humor carried us through really dark times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember him mockingly being like, oh, woe is me. You're so mean to me. And I, my comeback that Danielle knows very well is what? You'll live. <laughs> exactly. Uh -huh. You'll live. Well, and I've I've talked to a lot of couples and, and families facing ALS, and and they do tend to try and find those lighter moments and to lean on humor. And they've said, if I'm not laughing, I'm crying. Exactly. And I would much prefer to to be laughing. Right. Exactly. I didn't necessarily cry. Mine would tend to go to anger mm -hmm. at the mm -hmm. disease. Yeah, understandable. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think an, an interesting thing, when you do laugh, some people have guilt about laughing mm. and finding joy. Yeah. But it's more about like some of the way that um, people around you are looking at you and they're like, why is she smiling? Mm. Isn't she supposed to be sad? Mm. <laughs> and I, I've just always kind of naturally been a positive person. Yeah. And I think that that's, I, you know, I've always looked for the, the positive side of things, you know. Yeah, I lost this great friend and the love of my life, mm. but I gained a lot of friends 
and yeah. very surprising places. Oh yeah. It taught me how to be a better friend. And I'm just trying to use this experience that I've gone through to to make myself a better person and mm. to reach out and, and care for others as well. Well, and you have yeah. to remember too, the gift that we were both given of the years that we had with that person mm. or those people. Mm. I mean, those were amazing, amazing years. Best time of my life. Right. Absolutely. And I think you and I recognize that we had something so special with our spouses that some people look for all their lives. Mm. And yet we both had these relationships 20 plus years. So most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. Mine too. Mm-hmm. Really noble outlook. Thank you. One of the things that I would also say is I, mm-hmm. as is my anger would take over, I would get angry at Scott and be like, why aren't you angry? Mm. And this goes back to humor. His answer to me, which made me more angry, was I don't have time or luxury to be angry with my life. Mm. I need to enjoy what I have left, and I don't want to waste that. Mm -hmm. Of course, that hocked me off. Yeah, I get that. (laughs) But then that goes back to the humor. It's like you have to remember this person is still living. Mm -hmm. Make the time to make it as good as it can be. Yeah. Oh, that's good advice. That's good advice. A question that often comes up amongst new caregivers is, what should I be aware of? What should I expect? What don't I know going into this that that I should be considering? What were those pieces for the two of you? I'd say expect the unexpected. Mm, exactly. And don't get too far ahead of yourself in planning for what could come because mm. you don't know if it will. Yeah. But most importantly... Do the things that you're physically able to do now. Mm. Traveling, whatever it is, concerts, a sporting event, get out there and do it now because you may look back three months from now and be like, God, that was dumb of us. Right. Why didn't we do that? Right. Yeah. Don't get so wrapped up in the moment that you're just buried in a book coming up with like different like Dark scenarios. scenarios. Yeah. Or dark scenarios or just trying to figure out, like, how can I fix this? We're going to beat this ALS demon. Like, it doesn't, I mean, yeah, there was some of that in my house, too, mm-hmm. especially with my husband because he was a voracious reader, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I felt like, and he felt, I think, towards the end, like he lost some time with the kids mm. and a little bit with me. Um, I don't know. It's 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 different for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, Sean. Um, one of the things that I learned is to be patient. I kind of lost it now, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, now that's that's hitting back at me pretty hard. <laughs> mm. But uh, you have to be patient with the person you're caring for and with yourself. Forgive yourself for being tired and angry. Forgive yourself because everybody hits that spot. Everybody. I don't know one caregiver that hasn't looked back and said, oh, crap. Why did I say that? Mm-hmm. Or why didn't I do this? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You you both talked a little bit about the support group and how you, you found that helpful and people kind of reach that point at different stages and some people never attended a support group and, and some find them extremely valuable. Again, it varies. Were there other resources outside of the support group that you found to be particularly helpful for you uh, on this journey? Um, I would say our, our hospice group hmm. and hospice, and I, I called it hospice with a lowercase h because <laughs> hmm. when other people hear hospice, they're like, oh my gosh, they're right. on their deathbed. They're about to take their last breath. Yep. It's it's not necessarily like that anymore. Mm-hmm. We knew that he was terminal and I knew that I needed help and I was approaching some medical needs that I didn't know anything about. Yep. And I was just making up as I went along and I taught some of the hospice team things because I had been having to be creative. Mm. And I learned a lot from them, but we developed these amazing friendships. In mm. fact, I'm going out to lunch with one of the hospice nurses tomorrow. And, you know, I, it's, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Connections. Connections. Yeah. Like we've just, I've made so many 
beautiful connections and I've learned so much from other people. And I've really learned that sometimes there are hidden friendships that you don't know about mm. until something like this happens. And then other people that have been close to you fade into the background. They fade into the background because it's either too painful for them or you're not fun anymore. Mm. Right. <clears throat> yeah. We used a couple different things through the ALS Association that we really appreciated, which was mm -hmm. the loan closet. Mm -hmm. It saved oh, us yeah. a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And anxiety. Mm. <laughs> and then we used respite care, which, as I said before, you don't really get a break, but you get away to just kind of try to decompress. Yeah. The other thing that we really, really appreciated, and I was surprised because at the first I was didn't want to go every three months to our quarterly appointments, but the staff at the HCMC ALS clinic mm -hmm. was amazing. Every yeah. time mm -hmm. we were there, they were just so supportive and so wonderful. It's a great group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, the whole association here is great, too. I, oh, yeah. I can't say anything bad about them. Mm. We also had, you know, family that would go every... My my mom and his both of his parents would go to our quarterly meetings every time. Oh, wow. So we had support there through them. His parents came up every week yeah. on a Thursday to do laundry and help him in the office with things that... He needed or wanted to do so yeah right. we had a good support system mm -hmm. yeah. and it's, it's finding that that good balance of who the right medical team is because mm. before we started hospice care we had our quarterly appointments in rochester a different clinic <clears throat> from sean and scott but they were tremendous i mean a great source of information but there's this learning curve yeah. on ALS because people don't know enough about it, even the professionals that are specializing well, it. Well, and even if they do know, it's every individual is different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I know people who have gone in six months. I know people that are still here after 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. And it's... Yeah, just there's not one universal set of information right. or standards that so applies to everyone. So you never know. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, and we... We have a common friend who is diagnosed and given less than six months to live, and he's still with us. I mean, he's been around for four or five years. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. You never know. You never you, do. You never know. And they're fortunate that they did have resources to hire a 24-7 nurse mm -hmm. and be there to change out his trach and mm -hmm. all those things. And there's so much you have to to educate yourself on and and determine if it's a good good fit for you, for you. right yeah. well what you're saying i think speaks a lot to the value of making those connections with others that are, are going through something similar because even though everyone is different if you are involved in some of those groups or making some of those connections you'll meet someone who has been down a similar path mm -hmm. and you can kind of compare notes and say here's what worked for us and is this working for you and how has that impacted your family and you kind of form a composite of information that you might be able to use, even though it's certainly not going to be exactly what you're going through. Mm -hmm. You met someone who may have had something somewhat similar. Yeah, and I think that's what, when Danielle and Jason came to the first support group, I know Jason wrote a blog on when Scott died that makes me cry every time I think about it because mm. it's so sweet, but uh, about how he observed us in our interactions because Scott was then on the breathing machine, the trilogy, and... Yep had, you know, to have the mask removed if he wanted anything to drink or eat. Yep. And I, he called me fastidiously moving things around and making sure Scott had what he needed. And when we separated to go to our separate groups, mm -hmm. I had watched her in the initial meeting going around and knew she couldn't talk very well because Jason had introduced her and her lip just quivered. Mm -hmm. And so I sat next to her 
on purpose yep. mm-hmm. to make sure she would be okay. And mm-hmm. Jason went and introduced himself to Scott. And mm-hmm. That's kind of how I, we came about as friends. I don't remember what I said to you when I sat down. Oh, I'm sure it was very memorable. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you say is. No, I, I think, you know, we, we had that initial meeting, but then we did some advocating together yes, as we, well. We really became close when we went to D.C. Yeah. for mm-hmm. advocacy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So it was, we got to know each other pretty well there. Yeah, and it was it was clear that it was a friendship that was going to last at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's mm-hmm. obvious now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Seeing the two of you together. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> You're stuck with me, buddy. <laughs> well, uh, my last question, I don't want to take much more of your time, but my last question is really what sort of advice would you give to someone who has recently had a loved one diagnosed and maybe assuming caregiver responsibilities and is nervous, feeling anxious about what they're about to embark on, what would you say to them? I would say to try to reach out to others early on and not have to, not get too caught up in their pride. Mm. That was a hard thing for Jason and I to accept help from other people, even mm. though they wanted to be helpful. I would encourage them to look into resources where maybe they have an online calendar, like whether it's, I think there's Iana Care, there are other groups out there mm-hmm. that you can lay it out. Hey, on October 17th, I need this done, or January 14th, my children need a ride. Yeah. That was a big thing for me, because I'm like, how am I going to get my kids to activities if I yeah. can't leave my husband's side? Mm. And I had a lot of friends jump in and, and participate in that calendar with me. That's great. Mm. That's really good advice. I agree. I think <clears throat> making sure you have some resources early on, know that the friends that you have will be there and rely on them. And then also just to be patient with yourself because you're going to be struggling. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's no other way to say it. Yep. You're going to have times where you're tired and just want to be left alone. Oh, yeah. And that's something we didn't even cover. I mean, I didn't sleep for a year and a half. No. And the impact that has on your ability to be a caregiver. Your own health. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I was up at least seven times every night Ugh. with yeah. Scott. I mean, you're not getting a full night of rest. No, you're not. You're getting half I, hour I was, here, half yeah, hour there. I was excited if I got two hours of sleep. Mm. <laughs> it's just crazy. And now I'm like, oh, I can I can sleep all I want. But that was something I kept saying through the process too, because you know the hospice team would be like, hey, you need to get more sleep. And I'd say, I'm going to have plenty of time for that later. Mm. But right now, he needs me. Yeah, and, and it's, it's probably okay. easy to keep saying that, and then it just mm-hmm. adds it's, up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Danielle and Sean, for taking some time to sit down with us and discuss a very important topic. I know that our listeners are really going to appreciate this, and so do we. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Sean and Danielle for opening up the way they did and talking about their experience as family caregivers. Let's keep that thread going into our interview with Jennifer Myrie. We are joined in studio today by Jennifer Myrie, Care Services Coordinator for our chapter, the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter of the ALS Association. This is Jennifer's second appearance on Connecting ALS. We had her on, I believe it was episode two, to talk about home care. I think so. A few months back, but uh, welcome back, Jennifer. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you. And today... We're going to be discussing National Family Caregivers Month. That is the theme for our episode this month. And here in the U.S., we aim to recognize all of the hard work and sacrifice and compassionate support that goes into caring for a loved one, someone in need of care for what could be a number of reasons. And here at the ALS Association, we, of course, want to give some extra love to all of the ALS caregivers out there. But because we know there are so many different types of family caregiver, Jennifer, Tell us what uh, is unique about caring for someone who's living with ALS. So I think that the thing that stands out for caring for somebody with ALS is the fact that you know that the disease is going to progress, Mm -hmm. but it's a constant question as to how it's going to progress. Right. And so what that means for caregivers is needing to adapt to the changes as they happen. And the changes with the progression of ALS 
can happen week to week. Mm-hmm. And so we hear so often from family caregivers that, you know, once I think I have it figured out and we have a plan, yeah, then something changes and we have to re-assess uh, that plan and adapt. Mm. So that's one piece. And I think simply the the not knowing and the fact that change will happen is sort of hanging over people's heads is quite an unsettling feeling. I'm sure. I'm sure there's a ton of emotion around that and and you have to process each change as it comes. And there are a lot of differences, um, not only for the person living with ALS, but as the caregiver that are going to be day-to-day, week-to-week, different for you as well. Absolutely. You spend a significant portion of your time here at the association talking to individuals that are caregivers and helping advise them or guide them to the proper resource for help. What are some of the most common kinds of questions that you hear from ALS caregivers? I think that there are a couple. One common question we hear is, it's really more of a statement. Mm. I don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that is a frightening or unsettling yeah, feeling. scary. And so can you tell me what I need to know? Yeah, what don't I know? Right. And so that's a fair that's a fair question and I think because it's one over the years that we hear so often, that was really one of the reasons, maybe the main reason that we as a chapter created our online navigating ALS tool. Mhm. Mm-hmm. That is an attempt to create kind of a roadmap for people. And it's often caregivers who are asking those kinds of questions. I bet. To lay out for them, here are the things that generally families with ALS want to know about, need to know about. And so that's something that we will often rely on to guide people. Mm -hmm. We will refer people to that tool as a way to kind of get a a lay of the land, if you will. Yeah. And I know you you were going to mention another question that often comes up before we do that. I want to let our listeners know that the uh, Navigating ALS tool can be found at alsnavtool.org. And as Jennifer mentioned, lots of information in there for you to digest. And it's broken down by different topics. And and most people find it pretty helpful. So we encourage you to check that out. But I'm sorry to interrupt. What were the other kind of questions you wanted to mention? I think the other question I get frequently from caregivers is, particularly when their loved one is just newly diagnosed, am I going to be able to do this? Right. Is the question, which is obviously... A huge question Mm -hmm. and one that nobody really knows how to answer. But what we do at the ALS Association is do our best to provide guidance, Mm -hmm. to provide encouragement and support and the resources that people need to get additional support so that they can make their way through this caregiving journey or process. I think just very anecdotally, I would say that I can pretty comfortably, pretty confidently say to people I meet that I realize it's overwhelming to think about this right now, to Mm. think about all of it. You know, that the people's minds want to jump to the far off or not so far off future. Mm -hmm. But encouraging people to really just take things one step at a time to tackle one question at a time yeah, and to use the supports around them. And believe it or not, most people do do it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when they didn't think they could. Right, right. I suppose out of necessity, it's they, right. they do take it one day at a time and they figure it out as they go, which is a scary thought. And when people are saying, I don't know if I can do this, can I do this, that could mean a number of different things they're referencing. Is the concern for some folks the physical nature of caregiving for someone living with ALS? Because for many families, that that does play into it at some point, knowing that the physical needs uh, are going to be greater down the line. Yes, I think so. I think that is probably the primary concern. And also the fact that 
combined with that, many family caregivers are working. Mm -hmm. And so it is reasonable to ask the question, okay, so how do I work a full-time job if that's the case, which we all know is, you know, time-consuming and taxing? Yeah. How do I do that and caregive and do the rest of my life? Yeah, and that's a huge question and one that I wanted to pose to you uh, because many caregivers do eventually face that decision on whether or not they're going to leave work or at least full-time work to focus more time and energy on care for their family member. Everyone's circumstances are different, and there are a number of factors that play into it. It's a, it's a very personal decision, but do you ever have to offer any sort of guidance in that space? Are you able to offer guidance in that space, or is it just so personal? Yeah, I really appreciate the question. It's a hard thing to provide guidance for, mm-hmm. because you're right. Everybody's situation is very different, and there are some people providing care who really want to keep working. So the financial piece aside, yeah. for a number of people, that work outside the home is fulfilling. For some people, it's a lifeline mm. for support, for normalcy, mm-hmm. for feeling that there is some sort of purpose, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. So there's that as a factor. There's the financial factor. There's how quickly is one's loved one with ALS progressing. Yeah. How comfortable is that person being at home alone and how safe are they? How comfortable is the caregiver being away from home? Mm. So there, you're right, there are so many pieces that are so varied that it really does look differently for everyone. I think that usually families know Mm -hmm. when they get to the point where even if the money is needed, there gets to be a point where leaving the home to go to work just isn't feasible anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that they will come to that decision when they're ready, and I'm sure it's discussed and talked about as a family or as a couple. And, yeah, it's a, it's a tough choice and one that it will really depend on so many of those things you just discussed. Right. I do think that people get support with that kind of decision, sometimes from their social worker at at an ALS clinic if they attend one Mm -hmm. to kind of work out numbers and figure out planning and certainly financial planners if a family has has one can provide guidance there as well and really uh, we see that topic come up quite a bit at support group meetings I bet and just the ability to talk about it with other people who are facing a similar kind of decision mm-hmm. usually appears to be so helpful to people. I imagine, yeah, I imagine comparing notes and talking about what others have gone through and decisions they made, and it, I'm sure really helpful. Speaking of other caregivers and having those conversations, we, uh, for the previous segment on this episode, had an interview with Danielle and Sean, who were ALS caregivers who lost both of their husbands, unfortunately, to ALS. But they opened up about a lot of the things that they went through. And one of the things they mentioned was how during those initial months following the diagnosis, where there is so much going on and it can feel really overwhelming. You, a few minutes ago, said people ask, you know, I don't know what I don't know, or that's what they say to you. But it's just, it's a lot. And there's these complicated emotions and grief that comes with it. And all of this info you're expected to learn and and digest all this at once. What advice do you offer caregivers in those moments where they're feeling really overwhelmed? Yeah, this does come up a lot. And usually I encounter it when I am assisting a family with getting registered with the association. So that might be over the phone. That might be at an ALS-specific clinic Mm -hmm. where I'm meeting them for the first time. And during that visit, you know, a lot of times it's about us getting down to business and collecting information that we need so that we can have them registered with us. Of course. And then... One of the things that I usually will say to families when we're done with that is if there's nothing else that you remember from our visit today, Mm. I hope that you remember a couple of things. One is that there's a lot of support for you 
So whether it's through the ALS clinic, if they attend one, or through the ALS association, that we're here to walk this with them. Mm. And we'll be here as time goes on. And then I may also say, again, particularly to family caregivers, because it seems as though I hear that concern or see that overwhelm often from them. Yeah. And that is that usually it seems like this is the most overwhelming time for people. They're getting a diagnosis that's new, and so they're getting their heads around that. Right. And they're getting all this information at once. So in addition to reminding them about the support and how we're, we're going to be here as they need to bounce things around, as they need guidance, I'll also just let them know that generally what we see is that things calm down and things generally feel less overwhelming over time. Yeah, that's, that's good advice and, and maybe something that's difficult to hear in that moment. But I think if they register in any way, it'll help them recognize further down the line that, yes, at least taking in all this information and absorbing it is getting easier over time. Right, because there's less of it. Yeah, yeah. It's not all sudden. You've alluded to a number of these pieces uh, throughout our conversation here, Jennifer, but we at the ALS Association do have a number of program and service elements designed to assist specifically caregivers. What can you tell our listeners about some of the ways that the association offers support in this area? Yeah, well, I mentioned support groups. The ALS Association, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter, Mm -hmm. sponsors seven support groups in our service area. And if there isn't a support group on the ground near you, we do have our online support group that's available that we encourage people to check out. Yeah. We do have, of those groups, two that are specifically for caregivers. And we even open it up to friends, loved ones, anybody who... you know, has somebody in their life with ALS. Those are in the metro area and they are in the evening. So if family caregivers are working, hopefully it's easier to attend. Right. We have a weekly meditation that we offer to anybody in the ALS community. But in November, it's going to be geared specifically toward caregivers. Oh, nice. And this is 10 minutes of a guided meditation broadcast from our office live And it's just an opportunity to let the mind rest as caregivers and as most human beings, but, you know, particularly caregivers, there's always something to do. Yeah. And this is just one opportunity to have a little permission to not be doing something, just resting the body, resting the mind. A moment of zen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, there are ALS, as we mentioned, specific clinics, whether they are certified treatment centers, recognized treatment centers. This is a great way for people with ALS, of course, to get great care, but also for them and their caregiver to get a lot of support. This is a way to get that guidance in order to plan ahead for the things that most caregivers are thinking about. Most Mm -hmm. caregivers are thinking a step or two or more ahead. Mm -hmm. And so to get that kind of support from an interdisciplinary team to really, you know, be thinking about what's next, what are the things I need to focus on is really supportive. It's comforting to know that there are these things out there tailored to caregivers and that they have these resources available to them through the association. And I'm guessing there are people listening to this podcast that are hearing the soothing voice of Jennifer Myrie and want to talk to her about some of the questions they have. And that's okay too. They can call the ALS Association and speak to one of the members of our care services staff perhaps Jennifer specifically, about questions they have, that's available to them. Yes, definitely encourage that. And what percentage would you say of calls that you receive are from caregivers about caregiving needs versus a specific question about living with ALS for someone on that side? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I would say 
gosh, maybe, maybe even upwards of 50%. Okay. Wow. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's good. I'm glad people are reaching out. And related to the topic, I a lot of times will hear folks on staff mention the need for self-care. Why is it so critical that family caregivers take moments to ensure that they're taking care of themselves in addition to their loved one? I'm really glad you asked that question because it gives me an opportunity to talk about our family respite program, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which uh, would be very important to include here. So the self-care piece, while it can seem seem unimportant or insignificant. Or secondary, at least. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Is so important because we know that any caregiver, but especially somebody caregiving for somebody with ALS, really to be able to sustain that kind of caregiving needs to be able to have time to do what they need to do for themselves. So whether that's continuing being seen by their own primary care doctor and continuing those, you know, annual checkups, tending to other family members that they may have, keeping up some sort of a social life. So important. Yeah. These are all things that feed people and it's not selfish to still feel that need and to still have those desires to to do those things. So, you know, one way we try to support people in in self-care is through our family respite program. We will pay a home care agency to provide a professional caregiver so the family caregiver can step away and do some of those self-care things. That's really great. And that's is that that's so many hours per month that are available? Right. So it's 18 hours per calendar month. So most people use our respite program weekly for three or four hours at a time. And so then a family caregiver knows I've got, I've at least got, you know, this chunk of time every week. They mm-hmm. know that that's when they can schedule appointments. That's when they can schedule time with family or friends. And we encourage them to do that. I've talked to a number of families that have said they were a little bit hesitant to go down that path initially. And once they did decide to take part in the respite program, they realized how valuable that would be. And it helped them get over some of the feelings that you were maybe alluding to just about the guilt or, um, you know, fear that not being with their loved one at all times was going to cause problems. And stepping away for a moment was really beneficial for not only the caregiver, but also for the person living with ALS. Right. That's true. We do hear that sometimes that, hey, you know, as a caregiver, you get a little bit of a break, but hey, as a care recipient, (laughs) I get a little bit of a break too. Yeah. And it can support too the the original roles that the the two people have had. Mm -hmm. Um, So often that's, you know, spousal type role, but sometimes it's mother son, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, to be able to not always be caregiver, care recipient. Yeah, adjusting to those roles, a big part of caregiving for ALS and finding those bits of normalcy are key. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So my final big question for you, Jennifer, relates to an ongoing thread that probably anyone who listens to our podcast will recognize. But in preparing for hopefully a not-too-distant future where treatments for ALS are effectively slowing the progression of the disease for many, if not all of those impacted. This will obviously alter the landscape of family caregiving. And I want to be clear, this is a future that we're striving for. This is what we want, people living longer, higher quality lives until we find a cure. But what might that mean for ALS caregivers? And are we, uh, as an ALS community, doing anything to help prepare for that day? Mm -hmm. It's a big question. It is a big question. And so I I would like to think that the answer is yes, we are Mm -hmm. uh, doing something to prepare for that. I know that it's on our minds. We're we're advancing our programs where we can. I think that 
Technology is going to make a difference in caregiving over time. Mm -hmm. We've already seen it make a pretty big difference. I know we're really proud here of our smart home program, for example. It's changing a lot. And so that allows, you know, a little more sense of safety and security and ability of for a caregiver to be able to, you know, check on their loved one when when they may be away. It allows more independence of the person with ALS at home, so they might not need to rely on their caregiver as much. Sure. And of course, we only see technology advancing in into the future. So who knows what that's going to allow for or create. Yep. Telemedicine, something that our chapter I know is is looking at and creating a pilot for and seeing how that can benefit people with ALS and their caregivers to get care or receive more care at home versus having to go out of the out of the home. Mm-hmm. So a way to have things be more efficient, saving time and energy and and all those important things to caregivers. Yeah. You know, I think advocacy is so key. And fortunately, there are a number of great organizations that are working on different things uh, advocacy-wise for caregiving, for respite. So looking forward to, you know, continuing to see how that develops. I think the big push for that is around the aging baby boomers. Definitely. And so hopefully families with ALS will benefit from Mm -hmm. that action that's being taken. Mm -hmm. I know certainly here at the ALS Association, we have our eye on how to help people access home care more, how to help them access just more resources. And certainly through the act right now, the ALS Disability Insurance Access Act, Mm -hmm. where we're trying to get that five-month waiting period for Social Security disability waived. Yeah. All of that plays into, you know, just how families are managing. In terms of treatments and how, you know, whether or not ALS will we'll see that slow and how will that affect caregivers so hard to know i think i think we can hypothesize that what it's going to mean is people will be caregiving longer but i think what we don't know exactly is what level of care will One they need type to provide of caregiving yeah so i think that's going to be a huge piece mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This. yeah for instance if if there's a drug or a therapy that stems the progression of the disease enough that it can be slowed or halted at an early stage. A person caregiving for someone living with ALS at that point is going to be a lot different than someone caring for another person at a later stage of the disease, clearly. So right. a lot of unanswered questions, the questions that we, we won't know the answers to until that day comes. But what I like is that you said a lot of similar things to others that we've asked. It gives us confidence that we are preparing and we are thinking about that future and that it will arrive. And when it does, hopefully we're ready. And another one of your points as well, our aging population, family caregivers across the board, just the numbers are going to go up, the needs are going to go up, and surely those impacted by ALS will not be the only ones asking these questions. So as a society, it has to be addressed. And hopefully we're We're looking into that in the days ahead. Yes. We talked about some of the more formal methods and supports that the ALS Association has for caregivers, but there are other ways for them to get members of their networks, of their circles involved in their care, and and more informal uh, forms of support that are out there. The association offers those as well, true? Yes. One, One of the programs that we offer is our Family Assistance Program. And this is a program made up of volunteers for the ALS Association. And these volunteers are matched with families with ALS to provide assistance in the home, not with caregiving, like hands-on personal type care, but with all kinds of household tasks, errand running, cleaning, you know, organizing, help with projects, these kinds of things. Yard work, I know, is a big one, yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, over time as a society, we're going to need to sort of rethink how we use the informal help, non-paid help in our lives mm-hmm. and get more comfortable with it because we're going to need it. And hopefully culturally, 
we will continue to shift in the direction of, hey, it's okay to ask for help. Yeah. It's okay to give that kind of help. Mm -hmm. I think already a lot of people in our society like to give. They like to be volunteers and consider themselves helpful people. I think where we struggle more as a society is allowing yeah. somebody to help Making us. Making that ask. We're so prideful. Right. So we really encourage people to use that family assistance program and you know, remind them that sometimes there's even volunteers in waiting to really encourage people to consider it. But I think it's I think it's the direction of the future. I really do. I agree. It's a really great program. And I want to stress again that if you'd like to learn any more about these resources offered by the ALS Association, you can check with your local chapter on what's available. And if you are here in this region, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, go ahead and visit ALSMN.org to find all the info there. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss family caregiving today. We're going to dedicate much of November to this topic, so I hope that uh, everyone keeps their ears peeled because there's more on the way. Thanks. Thank you. I hope you learned a few things from Jennifer. I know that I always do. You heard her mention respite care as a resource, and that's something that we did a deeper dive on during our time with Jennifer on episode two. So be sure to give that a listen if you haven't already. We'll also put a link in the show notes. As I mentioned at the top, we're going to end this episode with a Seidel family. Like many living with ALS, John Seidel has had to continually adjust his way of life as the disease progresses. Since his diagnosis in 2018, ALS has taken his voice, among other things. But his creative spirit continues to thrive, and in October, his daughter Sarah put together an art show for friends and family to display many of the pieces John has created over the years. Sarah and her brother Pete talked about that experience and helped John share his thoughts on the meeting. This is their story. I had started putting art upstairs and Pete came downstairs and he, got, and he said, did you know dad did all of this? We were both really surprised that there was so much mm -hmm. and and one thing my daughter said that was really cool Emily said that not only is grandpa talented but he does all kinds of different art and he's good at all of it yeah he had just stuff in a portfolio <laughs> just for years yeah. I mean, most of us didn't see I mean I remember some of the things hanging in our house but I, we didn't see most of it it's incredible you know, especially having it all together in one place. Yeah. I mean, just having not only us, but his siblings see it and, you know, my cousins. And I think people knew he dabbled. I don't think people realized how much he actually did. I'm going to read my father's artist statement by John R. Seidel, dated October 26th, 2019. First, I want to express my gratitude for your being here to celebrate this occasion with me and my children and grandchildren. This Grateful Dad celebration means a lot to me and my family. The show itself owes as much to Sarah as to my work, as it was her idea and subsequent work collecting, framing, organizing, funding, and finding such a perfect venue that together has made for the perfect reason for a Grateful Dad party. I have enjoyed creative pursuits, both visual arts and writing, as a way to express myself, find meaning, and in effect regain psychological stability in my life. My appreciation for art history has helped me in my painting, as I have used some of the masters as inspiration. This in no small part due to the first-hand experience afforded me by Hannah's life-changing move to Paris and eventual employment with one of the world's preeminent art museums, the Louvre. The art show itself is personally significant to begin with because while I have engaged in art from high school years on, this is the first time exhibiting my work. But beyond that, its value and meaningfulness is bound up with who I am, with having lived through and relatively speaking, overcome some of the major difficulties I have had. Owing to the psychological stability experienced in relation to bipolar disorder over the past 20 to 30 years, connected as it is with my work on existential meditation, the artwork has regained and retained personal meaning. 
but this is half the truth. The most important factor, and in a certain sense, this fulfillment realized in showing my work, results from the love I have received from each of my children, Sarah, Hannah, and Pete. This is the summary I shared with them recently. Because of the three of you, because of your love, I was able, once again, to love myself. I am a grateful dad. I am grateful to my children and my grandchildren. I am grateful for each one of you who are here today. Thank you for coming. John. That's all we have for episode seven of Connecting ALS. I want to give one last shout out to all of the amazing family caregivers out there. And if you have a connection to a caregiver, please find a way to honor them during November and really every month throughout the year. As always, we want to encourage you to visit connectingals.org to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure that you don't miss out on any of the bonus content we've got coming out this month. And if you follow us on Facebook and Twitter, you will be alerted when those pieces become available. Connecting ALS is produced by Garrett Tiedemann at the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.